Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today I have a special interview for you with Dr. Damon Akins and Dr. William J. Bauer about their book, We Are the Land, A History of Native California. This was a fascinating book and a really helpful guide to helping me as someone thinking about California's history to put the different disparate pieces of indigenous history in California together into some kind of coherent whole. The book was such a fascinating read and this conversation was equally fascinating. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation about indigenous history in California. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on. Uh, your book um, has been very exciting to read for me. Um, sometimes I feel like uh, histories of indigenous people in California can books be those kind of dusty books in the back corners of libraries. Um, and you know, as someone that works in a lot of archives and uh, historical society rooms, you know, uh, the history post-1850 is the history that's often highlighted, um, which your book covers a lot of that, but your book digs into an aspect of California history that I've wanted to focus on uh, for quite some time. But before we get into talking about your book and uh, kind of the topics there, I want you to, either of you to just kind of talk about where uh, indigenous history in the writing uh, world is in the academic world. Um, there's been a lot of great books that I've really enjoyed uh, that have come out in the past few years, in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, some stuff more about, you know, the Lakota or uh, about uh, some of the um, Comanche. Uh, there's been some, there's been some great books on those topics. Um, and I just curious where, where, where the discipline has been, where, and where it's going from your perspectives. I don't know, Willie, you want to, I'm happy to. I can, I, yeah, I could, uh, I guess I'll start off with that. Um, yeah, I think, I think that it's, it's kind of a really kind of exciting time to be kind of doing kind of American Indian and indigenous, uh, indigenous people's history. Uh, I think kind of the big, some of the big themes that I've, I've kind of noticed in the last couple of years uh, is one kind of an emphasis on kind of indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous perspectives in interpreting and understanding the past. And so um, I'm thinking of like one of the books that I just kind of read again this summer was uh, called The Creator's Game. And so it was kind of a, a history of, of lacrosse from an indigenous perspective, uh, but the author like kind of foregrounded creation stories and oral traditions as a way to kind of tell a history of, of lacrosse. And so I thought that that's I think well, that's one of the kind of the most exciting things that I see in, in the field right now is this kind of perspective or this kind of emphasis on kind of indigenous ways of knowing. Um, I think too, of course, is kind of a, an emphasis on land and, and the kind of the struggle between kind of indigenous nations and the United States over, over land. Uh, I, you know, I think the, the kind of the theoretical development, not to get too in the weeds here of, you know, settler colonialism, which kind of emphasizes kind of the United States desire to kind of extract land from indigenous peoples and eliminate and, and eliminate indigenous peoples, I think has really kind of reframed kind of the field and has kind of brought a lot of interesting kind of perspectives and, and unique insights into it. And I think, you know, maybe that's kind of the third field or the third theme that I have seen in the, in the field um, is one that you kind of just touched on there with the books about kind of Comanche and Lakota. And I think one that we try to kind of emphasize in our book as well is uh, emphasizing uh, indigenous notions of power that indigenous peoples exerted power over Europeans. It wasn't this kind of one way over Europeans and Americans. It's not this one way uh, story where only, only Europeans and Americans exert power over indigenous peoples, but it's kind of this kind of dynamic way in which indigenous peoples 
uh, pushed back against and kind of controlled what, huge swaths of land, territory, and, and relationships with, with outsiders, including Europeans and Americans. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. I think that's really uh, a pretty good summary of, of how I see it. I have a couple of thoughts that that build on what Willie just pointed out. One is that I think the, you know, just as, as a kind of reminder, settler colonialism as a as a mainstream field within the historical profession is still only 15, 10, 15 years old. I mean, it is it is incredibly recent in terms of a theoretical model that's achieved so much uh, currency so quickly. And I think it's accomplished two things. I think one, it has really um, helped historians get around the presentist uh, resistance. So for so long, historians, as a as a very traditional discipline, we deal with you know however you define it. Uh, some folks are old stogies and believe that nothing that anybody could uh, be alive today and have been involved in could be properly thought of as history. But then you know obviously lots of other folks are thinking about history, the history of the 1990s, the history of 2000, and. Um, and a lot of historians are really uncomfortable with the idea of feeling the need to bring everything up to the present as a way of justifying historical thought, right? The historical thought stands on its own. It doesn't need to be brought up to today. But I think settler colonialism has given us a real clear reason why it's critical that we think about today, because settler colonialism posits that this process is ongoing. This is not something that has happened in the past. It's something that happened and it continues to happen. And I think that really brought a, a huge shift to the way historians think and obviously a real influence in a lot of the Native American studies and ancillary disciplines. And then I think the other thing I'd, I'd say is that it, it, it ties in kind of with what Willie was just suggesting is so much emphasis, as is often the case where a particular interpretation becomes really uh, vibrant or popular there's a little bit of a pushback. And I think one of the more productive pushbacks to settler colonialism is an emphasis on indigeneity, right? That 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 um, settler colonialism is a great way to understand this thing, but it takes actually takes us away from understanding the, the theoretical framework of indigeneity. And so under that rubric is this push for sovereignty and the push for land back and the, the, the a real approach. But I'm not sure that it could have had the power that it has right now if it hadn't had sort of the opening that settler colonialism brought into the academy. Thank you for that. I uh, it it is a it is an exciting field, and it's exciting to watch um, uh, the works being written, including yours, and which is the way I want to pivot to your book. But I want to kind of take a ten thousand foot view. Um, you know, in in producing this podcast and uh, covering uh, not not extensive, but at least a sampling of different uh, groups up and down California. Uh, one thing that everyone that listens notes is uh, the people that were living, let's say, in what is present day San Diego County are different, very different than the Talawa. And so grouping, grouping uh, people in a category like California, this arbitrary concept, uh, seems at times uh, not incredibly useful before there was uh, kind of some lines drawn. So you can talk a little bit about, I mean, I understand that you're operating from a world of, you know, California is a state that's been created. So we're going to use these kind of, you know, post hoc boundaries to look at a people group. But in terms of trying to understand the people group, how useful is, are those boundaries? I'll take a stab at that one because I think it's a really great question, and it's one we wrestled with a lot. And I, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've got one of the maps from the book enlarged, and it's the one that doesn't have any state boundaries on it. And I think that was kind of one of the ways that we approached it. We wanted the first map to have nothing about California per se in it. 
because it represents a time in which California didn't exist. Um, and so we really, we thought a lot about it. And I think that the reason um, or the way that we approached it is that California becomes something. And then as something, it asserts uh, a, a, a shared set of experiences over the people who live there, uh, particularly in this case, the indigenous people. So I, I don't want to be too provocative, but you know, the indigenous people to some degree are victims of California. Uh, participants in California. Uh, and so uh, even though it didn't make sense at the beginning of the book and didn't make sense until a certain point, at some point it makes a lot of sense. And it's, I think, the same thing when we talk about, say, American Indians or Native Americans across the United States. Um, you know, that category, it doesn't make a lot of sense until it does. And in mm -hmm. some way it does because the federal government began to treat these disparate people as a as a coherent uh, shared set of rules and regulations and administrative uh, uh, procedures. Um, and I think of the example of like termination in the 1950s when lots of indigenous people moved to the cities and sat around with other indigenous people and said, oh man, same way with you. Like back home, it's, they do the same stuff there. Yeah. It, that it, shared experience, uh, it becomes the, the kind of shared, like, I mean, it's like going into war. You, you, you're hardened by battle and you come out sharing <laughs> Yeah, I, I it, what you're saying kind of reminds me, I'm forgetting the author, but the book Seeing Like a State, where the way governments look at people then organ or forests or I don't, I, don't, I don't remember the analogies that were used in the book, but what the way a government looks at you actually not only categorizes you, but can actually restructure your world. I believe that's James Scott, but I can't recall yes. exactly. Yes. Yeah, James Scott, and, yeah. Yeah, and his idea of making the people legible. Like, mm -hmm. like making them legible to the state's apparatus in order to fit them into something. That's very useful when you're thinking about indigenous people, especially when you look at the lens of the BIA and the way the BIA fit or tried to <laughs> unsuccessfully fit yeah. people into very specific categories. And to some degree, California did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is that it was one of the more kind of exciting prospects of writing the book, right? California is probably, you know, the, the current boundaries of the state of California is one of the kind of the most diverse kind of indigenous spaces in, in, in North America, like more than a hundred different languages are spoken, kind of just different kind of political groups and, and, and homelands and, and creation stories. And I think being able to kind of wrestle, right, the, the, the amazing kind of diversity of, of indigenous peoples in, within the current state boundaries um, I, I think was was on one hand kind of a daunting task, but I think one that we really kind of enjoyed kind of taking the challenge and making sure that we gave kind of as much coverage to, to as many people as we possibly could, right? Make sure we balance kind of northern the you know people in Northern California, what is now Northern California, with people with Southern California, um, you know, different people, Indigenous peoples on the coast, Indigenous peoples inland, right? It was I, I you know I, I think that was kind of one of the fun challenges of, of writing this book. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'd add one other thing to that as well, that we've been asked sort of uh, by somebody else, does this serve as a model for other regional histories? And I think that one of the unique qualities of California is that which Willie just mentioned, it's incredible diversity. So in that sense, the incredible diversity of the region that was eventually tied together in the confines of this state, I think does really make it different. I think it'd be hard. I mean, I'm in North Carolina and it's a, there's a pretty diverse set of indigenous people in North Carolina, but, but not to the level of of California, and I think a you know a North Carolina history or native uh, history of Native North Carolina wouldn't ha be as challenging in that specific way, and therefore might not be as I don't know um, I don't know exactly what word to express might not work quite as well.
Yeah. Well, I, and when I was starting this podcast about California history, I picked something that would be a project that never ends uh, just because it is so complicated. So we're thinking along the same lines. Um, I want to get to kind of one of the central arguments in your book, which is fascinating to me, this concept of we are the land. Um, And I was thinking about this in context of migration um, and the fact that humans move and people change um, and I was thinking about this in context of where I live, which is uh, Fresno, um, and the fact that uh, there are certain people within Fresno that moved during certain periods in archaeological history that we can see. Uh, so, for example, the Southern Valley Yokuts uh, were much more native to this to that specific area for a longer time, and then some of them moved into the Northern Valley and adapted to that land. Um, and then just the broader concept. Um, that I took away from Charles Mann's book about, you know, people migrating here and then changing the environment. I mean, thinking about the large uh, mammals that lived throughout North America that are now extinct. Um, and so I, I, I am very attracted to the concept of we are the land, but I'm also partially skeptical in the sense that it doesn't seem to account for change. Um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of ways that I, th- I think I would respond. Um, I think one is this kind of this narrative, the story of kind of migration and movement is actually one that's deeply kind of embedded in, 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 in indigenous kind of ways of knowing that if you kind of go and you look at creation stories and oral traditions and those, you know, kind of indigenous sources, uh, I, I think you do see narratives of, you know, of, of people moving and moving about and kind of in, yeah, moving into different places. So for instance, one story that I always kind of remember is right after creation, all the people in the world are created. Some people leave, right? Some people leave the site of creation, but the people who stay there, they're the people of that land. The land was made for them and they were made for that land and they speak the language of the land. And then the people that move, they, they speak a different language. They live in a different place. Uh, they have different kind of relationships with the land. And so I think that this kind of idea of people kind of, this idea of kind of migration and mobility, I think is actually kind of really kind of entrenched in indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and you see that kind of, you know, in the, in the, in the period before say the arrival of Europeans uh, you know, in, in what is now California, right? Indigenous peoples aren't static, isolated people living in these kind of tight knit communities. Um, they're actually kind of moving about and trading with their neighbors and, and moving items back and forth across much of North America, right? So that items that were made on the coast of California end up in Pueblos in what is now New Mexico, right? Uh, So I I think we do see this kind of large kind of this long kind of history of migration of movement. And then I think one of the really kind of neat things that we do in the book is we kind of trace that migration and movement of people in into and out of California, uh, I think, well into the into the 21st century. And so that I think one of the kind of the cool stories that I remember um, that that, that Damon found that as I think in the in the third chapter on on what is kind of the Mexican period in California, he traced these two individuals, two California Indian people who kind of leave Southern California and are, are kind of trading and, and doing things in, in, in what is now in modern day New Mexico. Um, and I think on the on the flip side, one of the great stories of the 20th century is the, the enormous influx of, of indigenous peoples from outside the state of California in, in, into the state of California. And so you have kind of large urban populations existing in say San Francisco, LA, San Diego that are largely comprised of people from outside the state of California. And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think there is that kind of the story of kind of continuity. And I think that's a story that we really wanted to tell because I think often 
American Indian history is often taught and told as a story of disruption and kind of big catastrophic changes. Um, and so I think that this kind of notion of kind of continuity, I think is an important one to tell. Um, but I do think that we were able to kind of kind of speak to these kind of also to this kind of change over time that is pretty kind of con consistent in, in, in how you how one needs to tell tell history. It doesn't seem I mean, it's obviously not black and white. Um, and one of the stories that I tell um, in talking about the history of Fresno is that uh, there were uh, indigenous people living around the now extinct Lake of Tulare, uh, 8000 BCE, which is. <laughs> You know, law, you know, we're closer to Julius Caesar uh, than we are. You know, Julius Caesar is to those people living on that lake. And so even if there was movement, it's so long ago. But I bring it up just to say that, you know, when we're talking about this intrinsic relationship to the land, um, I just want to probe that and uh, to really test it, because I think it is an important point uh, that says a lot politically for where we need to go. I think it's good to probe that. I think it's a really, um, it, it slots very conveniently or very cleanly into a lot of the preconceived notions that have limited the way we understand Native people in the past. So like, a, a, you know, a, an analogy would be in the past when people would have viewed um, a Native American who did not dress in the traditional way nor speak their traditional language as being not really, you know, Native. Um, as opposed to understanding Native culture as a dynamic thing that evolves in the same sense, uh, tying people so closely to a specific plot, a specific space on the land um, can, can serve the same function. It can mean that if somebody is dispossessed, as most Native people in California to some degree were, that they lose being the people of that land. And it's a very difficult thing to walk because on the one hand, they are the people of that land, but at the same time, they are the people of land. I mean, they can they can take some elements of that relationship with them and adapt it to new places. But that doesn't mean that they can just, you know, move away and, and leave land that, that is literally where they were created. And I think, you know, one of the things that was sort of interesting is that we've gotten some interesting feedback on the, the vignette about Rome along those lines <laughs> that when these two Luisenio boys go to Rome, they're not in their native space anymore, which is entirely true, but also entirely not true at the same time. They are in a space that they can create as native. They can make this space native to them, but it is Rome. It is not Southern California. And, and I think both can be true in a way that is really hard to articulate. But if we allow only one of those to be true, then every space is native space indeterminately in a mushy kind of sense, or anybody who moves leaves the space that make them who they are and therefore they cease to be who they are and neither of those i think are are, are anything close to what the situation is yeah i left bakersfield when i turned 18 and i hoped to leave it behind but it follows me everywhere i go um <laughs> just the nature of that city um let's uh let's talk a little bit about um thinking about these concepts within the context of the modern kind of modern I, environmental movement. Um, I live in a state that's constantly on fire. Uh, I live in a state that is uh, where you have uh, interest groups um, that uh, are pitted against each other um, constantly in terms of preserving and conserving the land, using the land for all it has, particularly in the Valley where I am, there's a lot of, uh, 
water issues that are going on constantly, um, whether, you know, uh, there, there likely are some good reasons on either side, but uh, the kind of polarization has made it difficult to talk rationally about those subjects. Um, so how would you, how would you think about how these two kind of perspectives of the land could communicate? Can they communicate? Is there a way um, to think about California now, where we are now, um, and what can in indigenous ways of seeing the land, how can they be used to inform kind of the environmental politics as we have them in this uh, state that's just kind of a mess half the time? Half the time? Well, I'm, <laughs> I, unlike you two, I live here. So I have to, you know, that's this right. is where I sit. Uh, true. 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 Um, that's a really complicated question. I'll, I'll take a, a, a swap uh, attempt at it. I think... Um, both you, you say these two views i think there's probably far more than two but sure, i think sure. I, I understand the point that there's there's a you know and a quote indigenous and a non-indigenous way of seeing i think whatever number of views we're dealing with come very organically from a worldview and it's very difficult for people to step out of that worldview so it's very difficult for settler colonial farmers industrialists to step out of a worldview that's been formed by hundreds and hundreds of years of society and industry and the economy and recognize that commodification of the land is not the universal good that it has always been to the society in which they were raised um and i think that in some ways that is what i see changing the most um i'm a I teach at a small liberal arts college. Uh, I used to teach high school in Los Angeles before that. And the number of students who would identify as capitalists has changed dramatically over the last, you know, 20 years that I've been teaching, you know, from a standpoint of people who would sort of quietly suggest they may not be on board with capitalism to a classroom where I have now where I, I can ask this question and, you know, half two thirds of the class will identify as like, yeah, not really invested in capitalism. Now that's the, the wisdom of a 19 year old who's like throwing things out the dorm room window. But, but just the ability to say that rep represents some, I think some pretty tectonic changes in the way um, we are coming to terms with, with um, unpacking some of the things that have come into, you know, quote Western culture without us thinking much about them. You know, we've taken them as, as for granted and I think that um, that is an area where indigenous perspectives on land and land use are going to have uh, a lot to offer if non-indigenous owners and users and you know, occupants of the land can, can listen. Yeah, I was thinking about this recently because there was this great Atlantic piece about uh, the national parks and how yeah, they're being yeah, used. Yeah. And, um, you know, I live down the road from Yosemite and, you know, from, from May to September, it's Disneyland. Um, and there's just, you know, people are putting puka shells on bears, you know, it's just like, and I, it's just, it's hard to understand, you know, what the future is like. And, um, you know, I think, you know, that that's, would be a good example of where we need to rethink you know, the way environmentalism or conservation has been embedded with capitalism and, you know, selling yeah. people, you know, things yeah. in the park. And, you know, it's it's such a complicated thing. What I, what, where I do question though is, you know, in this world where, you know, we're living in uh, a pandemic world now where big government is needed sometimes to solve these huge international issues, how does that 
speak to, um, you know, uh, certain indigenous ways of thinking about the world that maybe were more local, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way. I, I think maybe even maybe first to kind of piggyback on a, a couple of your guys' discussions right there is that I was there was looking at something on social media the other day and, and they were um, it was, I think, for like the Siskiyou, uh, Siskiyou County in the wilderness, the quote unquote wilderness area up in far northern California. And the, the, the point was they didn't like geotag where they were taking their pictures anymore. And the reason and the justification was, is that they wanted to make to keep wild places wild as if no people had ever been there before. But I think one of the things that I think Damon was kind of mentioning, uh, and then I think one of the things that we discussed in the book is that, you know, Native peoples in California, Indigenous peoples in California have been tending, working with and on the land for, for centuries. Like you just mentioned, right, that, that Indigenous peoples are there on, on, on the now kind of dry Tulare lake bed 10,000 years ago, right? So that, that these areas that like you're just mentioning, like with the National Park Service, right, is that keep wild areas wild. Well, these areas weren't wild in the sense that there weren't people there. I mean, you know, processes of colonization began to kind of make, you know, it, you know processes of genocide, you know, the you know, practices of genocide kind of take native peoples out of these landscapes and, and change them over time. Um, so, but I do think uh, kind of an awareness of kind of local understandings, I think is important in, in this discussion. I'm not, but I think as Damon was mentioning a couple of minutes ago, I'm not sure a lot of people are willing to kind of have that discussion, right? Because I think indigenous and not to kind of overgeneralize this, but you know, kind of indigenous ways of knowing and relationships with the land are, are very different than than those kind of established by capitalism and, and Christianity, right? Indigenous peoples aren't necessarily over the land. It's not this kind of hierarchical relationship with, with people and then animals underneath them, right? It's, it's more of a kind of a relationship and a reciprocal relationship, right? So it, it's literally, right, that land is a living entity will take care of the people if the people take care of the land, right? And, so, and that's kind of embedded in kind of religion and, and ceremony. And so groups in you know, native, native nations in Northern California perform a world renewal ceremonies every year because it's their job, it's their obligation, right? To restore and, and recreate balance with the world. That's, that's their, that's their role in the world and whether or not, you know, I, I guess I would be kind of, I'm, I guess I might, my skepticism would be that I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, a Christian capitalist worldview would, would kind of accept that, that role or, or that understanding. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think there's hope for dialogue. Be, you know, I work with a group uh, in the area called the San Joaquin River Parkway Trust. And what we're, you know, part of it is just buying up river land to just, mm -hmm. just let it be. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that they are involved with, at least tangentially, is um, putting salmon back in the river. Um, that was a major part of uh, a food staple around here. And it's part of the ecosystem. I mean, obviously they have, they have drained the river to its dredges. So I don't know if those salmon are going to go very far, but uh, at least this kind of, uh, you know, this entree to. Uh... Yeah. I, I had two thoughts that, that kind of bring that question you were raising to some contemporary issues. One is the McGirt decision that took place in Oklahoma uh, about 18 months ago, which, uh, you know, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with, but it's worth looking into in terms of, of Native American law. It was one of the most important decisions in decades uh, because it effectively ruled that a large portion of the state of Oklahoma is Indian country legally. And therefore the, the tribes and the nations that are there have, uh, you know, administrative power over a number of issues and jurisdictional power. I, 
it was interesting to watch the the fear and loathing among non-Indians in anticipation of it, particularly the oil companies, but also just common folks who are saying like, oh, no, if the if this is Indian country, we're going to be under the authority of indigenous people. And that means we're and, and then, you know, would proceed a whole slew of ridiculously uh, you know, dismissive and reductionist assumptions about, you know, horseback and headdress and, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. ridiculous stuff. And in the end, it turned out to be simultaneously a really big deal in terms of Native American law and also probably not that big a deal in terms of the minds of a lot of the people who now find themselves living in Indian country. I mean, I think we haven't seen the effects of it yet, but it's clear that it's not going to mean that anybody who was held for a crime in that region is suddenly freed. Uh, it's probably going to be more like there's going to be slightly different environmental laws and you pay your bills to a different entity that's got a different set of abbreviations on the bill. I mean, it's really pretty mundane. I think that speaks to this idea that that um, that indigenous control of land is is is, again, simultaneously really important, but also not revolutionary. And I think a Truer's article in The Atlantic about giving the national parks back Again, something that 10 years ago would have been hard to imagine a major publication publishing it that way. Uh, and now seems like eh, yeah, they'd probably do a pretty good job of it. I mean, they'd probably do a better job of it than than currently being done. And I think that's that that speaks to that. The other thing that made me uh, remember is Kim Tallbear's work, the Dakota uh, author, who's um, done a lot of really interesting stuff in pushing against the um, – the the animist hierarchy, right? The idea that some beings are perceived to have a hierarchical authority over other beings. And she's used that to really integrate an environment, an approach to environmental sustainability, but also a, a, an approach to, you know, sovereignty and the land that, you know, that, that, that the key to having a relationship with the land is to, to, push aside and diminish the primacy of that animacy, right? The idea that that we are the people, we are the entities that control other entities. And I think that when I share that art, there's a particular article she wrote a couple of years ago in a journal called Kalfu. And when I share that with my students, it's one of those that really shakes them up because uh, they find themselves um, convicted, you know, like, wow. Yeah. And it, make, it makes sense in a way that I think a lot of times it's portrayed as some kind of very esoteric traditional knowledge as opposed to she approaches this from a, a fairly, you know, she's a, she's a scientist. And uh, so she's approaching this from an indigenous scientific standpoint saying, this is a whole systemic approach to the world that makes sense of things. Yeah. And you know, the <laughs> trying, you know, turning a group of people into one idea um, and not allowing people to change and adapt um, and stereotyping them. You know, it's like I come from a, a, you know, a kind of a Christian religious tradition, at least my family. And I, you know, there's a big difference between me and Ignatius, you know, like, and no one you know, is just assuming that I think the same things that some mystic thought in the desert in a hundred AD. Um, and in the same, I, but I think we do that to native people all the time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we just kind absolutely. of lump them in as a category um, that's historical and uh, like a timestamp. Yeah. But I, I do want to talk now about um, encounters um, because this is a big, this is a big thing in public education. Uh, there was a big move to, uh, think about history and teaching history through the locus or the lens, excuse me, of like these moments in time. Um, and there's also never been a, 
a subject that's been more misunderstood, I feel like, than these kind of first encounters, uh, because they're often mythologized for, you know, public ceremonies and holidays and whatever else. Um, um, but then I also, you know, there's also this kind of knee-jerk reaction to assume that they were all incredibly violent, uh, these hegemonic forces just descending on helpless victims. And both of those narratives seem to be incomplete. Um, so could you give a little bit of a perspective on um, where, where, are, um, where the kind of the more present narratives of encounters are misleading and where, what more accurate picture of them is? Yeah, I think this was a big part of, of I, but the, the second chapter of the book where we really wanted to kind of reframe and rethink you know, these stories of so-called right first encounters between indigenous peoples and, and, and Europeans. And I think part of, I think part of the, the reason or the importance of that is that often, right, these stories about first encounter uh, are used to kind of justify the kind of the colonization and the colonialism that comes, that comes afterwards. Um, I, I think I recall one that we use in the book to, to kind of depict this is that it's a story of right, the Spanish allegedly kind of landing first uh, on, on the California, off the California coast, and they hold the first mass that's uh, you know, on California. So it's all of these quote unquote firsts as if the first time Europeans arrive in a place, the first time, the first time again that they hold mass uh, as if they're kind of bringing um, capitalism, like we're talking about and quote unquote civilization to, to again, kind of a wilderness where no, where no one is quote unquote kind of living or, or that sort of thing. And, and in, that, in that description, in, indigenous peoples are depicted as being afraid of, of Europeans as if they kind of hide behind rocks or are kind of lurking, in the, uh, lurking on the landscape. And we really wanted to kind of change and flip that narrative on its head because it, it, you know, if you even go look at, at the, the primary documents or the things that sailors are writing in these encounters, that's not anywhere near what was going on. It's, is very often in California is that indigenous peoples would get in their own, you know, ocean going, you know, uh, boats and canoes, and they would sail out and go meet the, meet Spanish and British sailors as they were kind of docking or, or kind of coming along the coast. And that native peoples would often kind of go off and, and, and meet them and try to kind of create a relationship with them at the outset. And this is no, and this is what native peoples would be doing with other people that they didn't know over, uh, you know, in, in their encounters with other peoples. And so there's a kind of a, 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 you know, we were kind of talking a little earlier, there was, I think, a continuity to the story. Uh, and, I, and I think the other thing that I think we wanted to kind of point out, so that it's, it's not that native peoples were hiding from Europeans, actually, they just went out and met them like any other people. But often Europeans kind of relied on indigenous peoples to kind of continue their journeys and that without indigenous peoples, the you know, Spanish sailors wouldn't have gone up as far north as they did. Right. So because the, the Spanish didn't know how to navigate California's coastline, um, the Spanish didn't know how to kind of travel up the, the Colorado River. Uh, it was indigenous knowledge. Uh, indigenous peoples had that knowledge and they shared that knowledge uh, with the Spanish. Uh, and indigenous peoples had knowledge of the interior that the Spanish didn't know and they wanted to gain access to. And so it's much more, I think how we describe it, it's much more of a kind of a relationship, a kind of a, a reciprocal relationship where it's, a, it's kind of a, it's an exchange system that I think that really kind of challenges a lot of these, these kind of other kind of colonization narratives that, that we see perpetuated in, in, in California. Yeah, I, um, I, I deal with both of those narratives often, um, and they both seem to uh, be serving some political ends now um, or some ideological ends. Um, and then there's also just the, uh, the complexity thing, right? There's so many different kinds of encounters. There were encounters that were extremely violent, 
um, and definitely, you know, kind of fit more of that narrative of, you know, oppressor oppressed situation. And then you have these commercial encounters that seem to be mm-hmm. reciprocal, although they don't always end that way. Um, you know, and so it, it, it seems like it's such a complicated issue that, um, you know, is hard to be reduced to one, uh, one particular narrative and should just be addressed in its locality. Um, but that's hard because people want kind of one kind of, you know, thesis statement to walk away with that, oh, this is the relationship that these people had to these people and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think if we think about it from two separate perspectives, both of which were in what Willie said, one is a theoretical perspective and then one is a, like a source-based perspective. In theoretical sense, one of the books that I've used to great, to great effect with students is The Saltwater Frontier by uh, uh, Andrew Lippman is his last name, came out a few years ago. And, and it's, it's one of those books that says, let's flip the theory a bit and let's assume that indigenous people, in this case on the eastern seaboard, are, you know, maritime they're very, they're very, they, they live on the water. They are sailors. They are, uh, the, the point of contact moves, as Willie was saying, off the land and into the water. And it's really easy in that context to, to get students to see that when, when two people meet, one of whom is in a ship that has been used to sail across the ocean and the other is in a, a boat that has been uniquely adapted to the particular water that they're in, uh, which is where they've been working and living for you know millennia that that there is a real disadvantage to the to the people who we traditionally understood as being all powerful and and that that really helped uh, alter the kind of power dynamics that we often assume are, are intrinsic to these interactions the other is i was just reading uh noe noe silva's book aloha, aloha betrayed and she um does a great job of pointing to the way that narratives uh, appear so different. So I'm thinking in instant in this particular instance, a long narrative that was written in the 1860s. That um, was one of the more common narratives used to tell the story of Cook arriving in in Hawaii. Uh, but in its traditional language, it's like 17 pages in, and he's just he's kind of a side figure. Like all this stuff happened, and then this other stuff happened, and this person came, and that person came. And this person got angry and then this thing happened and then we had these visitors and then this guy came and and just goes on. And when you read it in its original source, it's like it's not even a it's it's clearly not the most important thing that happened. But when that got translated, uh, all the other stuff didn't matter to the translators because they were looking for evidence of Cook and they found it. So they just rendered the first whatever 17 pages as an ellipse and that became the standard and as she points out when this book came out it was still possible to do a phd in hawaiian history without speaking or reading hawaiian uh and so the the level of bias intrinsic to the sources that we use is so deep and still so much in the process of being unpacked that that i think those two things together just the the and they're intertwined the theory and where that theory derives from in terms of the sources we have access to uh, really can change the way we think about those encounters. Yeah. And I think that's true with the mission history of California too. Cause if you sure. just read the Spanish sources, sure. you, you don't get the sense of native power and control over, you know, I'm going to work today or I'm going to go over here and do something else I got to do. Sure. Um, yeah. And just relying on those, furthers kind of one of those uh, narratives that's that's inaccurate and uh, serves to, you know, just give people a picture of uh, native people as kind of passive in California. Sure, sure. And, and, and it's hard to work around that though, right? Because you have to use the sources that you 
that you've got. Um, and you know, you can extrapolate, but, uh, how do you think about that kind of that missing voice in California indigenous history? Um, how do you think about how you fill that space, but also being, uh, you know, true to what you have? I think historians are by nature interdisciplinary, at least good historians are by nature interdisciplinary. And I think Native American historians uh, are even more so. We've, you know, I think Willie, I, I mean, I know, I think of myself as an ethno historian. Um, and, and that's a field that is explicitly borrowing from anthropology. But I think just in general, the move from history to Native American studies and positioning oneself in that way means that you have to be open to a lot of sources that are not written. And uh, and I think that that's still uh, something that that is not as widespread or as common as I would hope. But certainly I think that that's where the best work in uh, that I'm seeing is coming out of is, is people who are are augmenting the written sources that we have with a variety of other sources that we can access and use in conjunction with them. Yeah. yeah that's been something that I've done all my kind of academic career, right? So when I went, when I went, to, when I applied to go to graduate school, I knew that I needed to include oral history into, in, into what I did. Uh, you know, so I'm, you know, from the Round Valley Reservation in Northern California, up to that time, there hadn't been much written about Round Valley and none of it was written from the perspective of native peoples and it didn't include their voices at all. Their, you know, didn't include their voices at all. And so, you know, when I, yeah, so when I started doing my work, I, I was all about kind of using oral histories and, and work in, and working with, with community members on, you know, to, to, to not only kind of tell about the past, but to interpret the past. And I think that's a kind of a key, a key thing is that, yeah. you know, on one hand, like oral histories, uh, you know, what they do is that, that they provide information that you can't find in the archival record, right? So I remember, you know, when I was writing my first book, uh, you know, it was on kind of migrant farm workers, in, indigenous peoples as migrant farm workers in Northern California, right? I would go to the, uh, the um, archives in Washington, D National Archives in Washington, D.C., in San Bruno, California. I would find lots of references to Native peoples leaving the reservation and picking hops in Mendocino County. And I got to a point where I was like, well, I know that. I know what they're doing, but I don't know what it's like to pick hops. I don't know what it, what, why people are picking hops. I don't know those kind of things that I could not get from the archival record, the written archival record. I had to go do these oral history interviews. And I think, uh, and, and so they, they provided kind of context or they provided information that I could not get in, in the National Archives. But I began to kind of realize that, too, that they're interpreting the past, right? So oral history is not only kind of telling the past, but it's a, it's a method of interpreting the past as well. Uh, and so they will, so, you know, the, I would, the, the, the title of my first book, We Were All Like Migrant Workers Here, was, was taken from a quote. And I, and I, and I thought, I, what, what I began to kind of realize is that people were kind of interpreting what that, what that history of migrant farm work, work meant to them and what I think it also kind of meant to the rest of the, to California and the rest of the United States. And I, and I think that's why I always kind of think that there's kind of power in oral history. It's, it's not only just kind of providing information that you can't get in written sources, but it's also kind of seeing how people interpret and understand their pasts and, and, the, and the history of, say, the state of California and, and the United States. Let's, uh, let's make a little bit of a pivot here to come back to the land. Um, we're going to talk about changes in the land to, you know, 
tip my hat to William Cronin, whose book was one of the first ones I read in college. I remember uh, reading that book in my survey class, my U.S. history survey class, and thinking about uh, how the land changes. And now I live, you know, uh, in land that has changed dramatically. Um, I used to live, you know, the Central Valley used to maybe resemble North Carolina a little bit more, and now it resembles uh, Arizona. Um, And I want to talk about livestock. because it's something that's like a huge uh, elephant in the room in terms of how California changed uh, because it was such a big industry. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about uh, the impact uh, of livestock and the introduction of uh, kind of ranchos and that industry and how that uh, changed indigenous land in California? Uh, yeah, sure. There's a lot. Let's see if we can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you can condense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 early introduction of livestock, you know, as an adjunct to the missions, um, were you know, it was part of what Steve Hackle has pointed to as the double revolution. It really, you know, uh, contributed directly to the destruction of indigenous land, indigenous plants, indigenous. I mean, the whole ecosystem is, you know cattle are clumsy and big and they step on stuff and eat stuff and they're dumb. And I mean, no offense to cattle, but they just sort of lumber into these ecosystems that were fairly delicate and managed and uh, trample over everything. And that, that is very clearly part of the destructive nature of the, of the arrival of the missions. And as, as Hackle and others have pointed out, a big driver of indigenous people to, to the missions themselves as a survival strategy but I think also it's not just the ranchos. I mean, the the scale and when you get into the 1840s grows exponentially. But then it it it's also the arrival of the of the trade, the hide and tallow trade, um, where you shift from uh, the cattle as a as a form of food to the cattle as a commodity that it, that that the hide and tallow greatly exceed the value of the of the an, animal's meat itself. So there's all these stories in the 1840s and 50s of you know, there's just, there's no, there's too much meat. Like they don't know what to do with it all because they can't at this point preserve it long enough to have a market back in the East. Uh, and so, you know, in the same way that we think of California Rancho society as being land poor, but cash rich, you could also think of them as like, like meat rich, you know, they, they, you could, you, part of the reason that Californios were understood to be so generous is they would give you meat. They'd feed you when you came to a rancho because they had all this meat. It was, it was essentially a free resource by that point, but a great, great, huge, another layer of, 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 um, destruction because it went from being simply the presence of, of cattle to being commodifying a specific aspect of cattle which meant that cattle could be produced in to a larger in in a larger degree instead of it being cattle being produced for meat now you could produce far more cattle than could be consumed simply to render the hide and tallow for the commercial market back east and i think that that you know again um as is often the case gave native workers um access to wage labor uh, as it also destroyed the ecosystems and the way of life that many of those people uh, had previously had. So in that sense, it functions like the entrance into wage labor is labor is somewhat similar. And Willie's written about this very eloquently, but somewhat similar to the entrance into the missions. You know, it's partly driven by the destruction that's placed on indigenous traditional life ways and la- relationships to the land. But it's also a coping mechanism with that. Yeah. Push and pull. Push and pull. Yeah, I think to. Yeah. 
And to build on that conversation and, and our previous one about kind of sources is that's one of the things that I've always noticed about um, or the thing that I kind of appreciate about kind of California Indian oral traditions and oral histories is that they always kind of they, they tend to talk a lot about domesticated animals and domesticated livestock. And one of the things that has kind of always stood out to me as I've kind of heard and read these um, oral traditions from native peoples is, is how they always kind of focused on cattle and horses feet like on their hooves. They always were very kind of clear about describing how they, you know, cattle and, and horses had different kind of feet than, say, deer or bears or other kind of uh, other kind of animals. And I think it kind of speaks to what kind of Damon was just saying a couple of minutes ago about the, the kind of the clumsy nature uh, of cattle and how they kind of lumber into areas. And, and just kind of thinking about the ways in which, you know, kind of the large kind of feet, the different kind of feet that cattle have, you know, compared to, say, deer, how that might kind of affect stream sides or river sides or even the way in which kind of the land looks, right? I mean, especially in the way in which kind of cattle are kind of herded in, in large groups, you know, kind of throughout. And, and, and you see the kind of the same thing with how kind of California Indians kind of interpreted and thought about uh, pigs and, and sheep, right? A lot of the kind of the references that you see in oral traditions about pigs is how they kind of always come in rooting up the land Right. And so how they how one, that's kind of a destructive way, but they're also kind of taking indigenous food sources. Right. They're they're consuming acorns or they're even digging up, rooting up. Right. Uh, indigenous acorn caches that are kind of under the ground or you know, on top of the ground, too. And so the same thing goes with sheep is that I think that they one one woman, indigenous woman kind of called sheep. They, they just go and just eat everything on the mountainsides. Right. They just denude the entire grasses that are up on, you know, the mountains of, of mountainsides of northern California. And so they. There's this kind of great way I think California Indian people have kind of interpreted and thought about kind of carefully the ways in which kind of domesticated livestock have kind of changed you know, changed the lands. But uh, you know, again, kind of as David Damon was noting, uh, Native peoples kind of also kind of become cowboys. They kind of enter kind of agricultural and pastoral kind of workforces in the 19th, the 20th, and even into the 21st centuries. And so there's this kind of interesting and kind of complex relationship with kind of domesticated livestock that we even see 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 today. Yeah, Which I, I think, think goes back to, right. if I could say, it goes back yeah, to yeah. that thing that we've been talking about already, which is that this, this is this dynamism and tradition, right? Like the, the idea that indigenous people can become really successful and competent and, and proud, uh, you know, vaqueros or cowboys uh, at the same time that they can recognize that, that this way of, of interacting with the land and with animals has been destructive of traditions that were very dear to them. And, and it, it isn't one or the other. It isn't, uh, you know, it isn't a sellout to become a cowboy. It's just part of this process of ongoing adaptation. Absolutely. Um, all right. Just a few more questions. Um, I wanted, I didn't want to leave this conversation about briefly uh, touching on the huge topic of the reservation system in California. Cause I, I, I do feel like it's true that uh, people um, have an understanding of the res in places like Arizona and New Mexico, uh, but less of an understanding in California. Why do you think that is? And um, what about uh, the history of reservations in California leads to this uh, lack of knowledge in that area? Well, this is a, you know, if, if the kind of the, the story of domesticated livestock in California is a long and complex one, this is another kind of long and complex yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So we'll try to kind of summarize. We're just trying, best. we're just trying to give people oh, a yeah, taste sure. because we want them to go to your book to read the full story. Um, so no. just give us the teaser, if you will. Yeah, yeah, no worries. No, I, I just, I, yeah, I just kind of offer a, a tease again. I, I think, I think one of the kind of the, the key differences in California 
um, is, is maybe the lack of treaties, right? So that the, that the United States never ratified 18 treaties with California Indian nations, which would have created, you know, what, 18 reservations uh, in the central, central and southern part of the state. And I, and I think that this kind of speaks to kind of one of the reasons why we, we wrote the book is that I think even today, people don't understand or don't know that there are reservations in California or kind of think that native peoples in California have all vanished and disappeared or somehow, you know, this kind of thing. And so, um, I, you know, I think this kind of lack of treaties kind of left California Indians kind of vulnerable to state policies of genocide and slavery. And so when the federal government does kind of fulfill its trust obligation, its trust relationship with, with indigenous peoples, they often, they create a small number of reservations. They then disband some of those reservations a little bit later. They fail to survey those land boundaries, allowing um, Americans to squat on on tribal lands, right? So there's this kind of contested and, and kind of deeply kind of problematic way in which the federal government really kind of fails to kind of uphold its relationship with, 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 native, with native peoples. And so, um, and, and then very often when, when reservations and kind of another kind of unique aspect of California rancherias are created, they're often kind of smaller than what, you know, I think when people think about a reservation, they're thinking about thousands and thousands of acres of land and yeah, so like Round Valley and Hoopa Valley in Northern California are large reservations in terms of acreage, but then you also see very kind of small, uh, small reservations as well in rancherias as well that kind of, I think, speak to kind of that notion that, uh, you know, that, that kind of gives this idea that people kind of don't understand kind of that history or those experiences of, of living and growing up on reservations in the state. It's also very strange that California, I mean, the, it, it, there are a number of things that came together to create the idea of the modern reservation, but a big and often underappreciated part of that story is the presence of the missions, uh, that, that in the 1850s, there are a lot of officials who are looking at the missions with a really kind of rose-colored glasses, imagining it as this prelapsarian understanding, like everybody's got a place, everybody's happy, everybody, the, the noble padres and the diligent Indians. And, and there are a number of people are pointing directly at that and saying, what we need is a civic version of that. We need it not to be based on religion, but on this idea of civilization. We need, you know, civic authorities we need to create. And, and that's something that was a big part of what originally drove the early missions in California, which were almost all of them, uh, um, eventually disbanded. And then the treaties weren't signed. So this idea develops here and then gets exported, as is so often the case with California, right? The idea goes elsewhere and becomes huge. And and I think we think of reservations, strangely, as not having a foothold in California because they kind of don't, even though that in some ways they started there. Uh, and, and, and it's an un, I don't know, it's an underreported part of the of the origin story of the modern reservation yeah we're going to jump ahead kind of towards the end of your book and talk about thinking about ways forward talking about lawsuits resistance and uh you know uh giving back um so obviously uh you know the lawsuit in oklahoma is looming in the background of this conversation because it was so impactful um uh, but how do you think about these different tactics for addressing uh, the land that was taken. And um, I know at the end of your book, you mentioned, um, I'm forgetting the name of the city that uh, gave back uh, some indigenous land, but um, it's hard for me to imagine that being uh, a, a kind of a ubiquitous practice across the country. Um, and just my knee-jerk reaction would be assuming that lawsuits would be the way uh, to to navigate this, but then you have these situations of, you know, 
you know, af- after after California was made a state and they were going through all these land issues and they were trying to settle it in courts and there was all this like documentation yeah. that wasn't, yeah. you know, in the legalese that it needed to be in, it just resulted in more situations of loss. And so I, yeah. so it's, it's such a complicated thing. How do you guys think about uh, uh, ways forward? So the, the city that you're thinking of, that's Eureka and the Weots. And, uh, and as we say in the book, it's one of, if not the first major land uh, return that wasn't driven by a lawsuit. Um, and I think you're right to be skeptical that, 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 you know, this represents some sort of, you know, immediate wave of, of land rematriation. However, as I often try to work with my students, we could just add the word like yet to that, right? Like not yet, but it, it represents a change. And that change, when we take a long view, uh, is significant. And, you know, I have no doubt that indigenous people are going to reclaim control over large swaths of what is currently the United States. I don't know how long it will take. But from doing the work in this book and and reading the the work that I've read, it's not a question of if that will happen. It's just a matter of when. And a real simple and and I think somewhat crude analogy is that when I started teaching, uh, students would ask me, like, do you think the Washington full team is ever going to change their their name? And they would they would they would argue like they say they're not going to. Dan Snyder says they're never going to. And I'd go, well, they will. Like when? I go, I don't know when. But it's not a question of if. It's just a matter of when they're going to do it. And as we've seen most recently with Cleveland, this is happening, you know, it, it's getting faster and faster. It's good. We're taking more and more steps. So I think what happened in Eureka is anomalous, but but maybe not so much in 10 years when we look back on it. It, it is currently awkward. I think that the land back movement has, has escaped the bounds of a hashtag. Uh, I think that some of the things like the Segurote, uh, uh uh, a tradition in, in San Francisco where you can pay taxes based on your um, the degree to which you own land in Ohlone territory, uh, you know, using Venmo uh, or PayPal. Like these are these are classic examples of indigenous people adapting to current technology and current ways to simply offer, in this case, offer people who want to say one thing, the opportunity to do something to back that up. And I think that plus the the political power that's coming from um, uh, indigenous communities who are reclaiming land mean that this is this is going to happen and it's just happening a bit faster than I thought but not a whole lot faster right and I'm you know I'm I'm a young guy so I just you know and I'm 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 in that edge of millennials where we still just want we just want things to happen now um, and but I also you know in in my knee-jerk reaction to to seeing legal stuff as the solution, uh, to reference that wonderful book called The Nonsense Factory. Uh, I know the American legal system is a mess and it's it's not usually, it doesn't usually err on the side of justice. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer happy person and I don't think that's the way forward. I, um, you know, I just, it's one of those things, you know, in American history, if, you know, it's uh, two steps forward, one step back, you know, I, I kind of see things, you know, I try to be cautious in, 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 in my hope because I also see darkness always there waiting. I think this speaks to, to one of the ways in which the relationship between indigenous peoples in the United States and the, and the United and the United States has kind of changed since the 1980s is that, I mean, I thought you, you do see kind of this kind of rush. I mean, you do still see, right, Supreme Court cases and court cases kind of mounting up. But but since the 1980s, it's been much more of a 
these systems of kind of negotiations between indigenous peoples in the United States, negotiations with uh, between indigenous peoples in the state, uh, negotiations between indigenous peoples and local entities, right? Or between like the what and the um, and, and the city of, of Eureka. And, and part of this is just right on one hand, uh, in the 1980s and the early 1990s, the federal government cut funding to American Indian nations and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There wasn't as, not, as much money, say, to hire for tribes to hire lawyers. Therefore, they began to kind of find other ways of, of getting what they want <laughs> rather, you know, rather than the courtroom. And so they began to kind of negotiate. And, and we see this too, right, with the history of, of gaming, right? Tribes, however you want to kind of think about this, have to, if in order to kind of operate what, you know, class three big casinos in California, they got to negotiate with the state of California to, to get that done. And so I think you, you see that kind of, this, this kind of new kind of political developments coming in, into the state. But I, I think one of the cool things that whenever I would mention something like this, when Damon and I were writing the book, he was like, oh yeah, well, they were doing that back in the early 20th and the late 19th century too. So there's this kind of, there's this long history of, of native peoples in California, right? Negotiating with a whole host of, of political entities to, among other things, as, as Damon mentioned, right? Get land back, right? And so it's, you know, yeah, this, there's this, this, you know, the social media hashtag land back, but, but native Californians have been kind of fighting for this, you know, through the, throughout the 19th and 20th, 20th centuries. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, I, I want to, you know, I don't always want to bring it back to non-indigenous people and how they can participate, but there is this sense that, you know, hashtags and what's popular uh, around here is to have, uh, you know, an email signature that uh, specifies where you're working, um, which is fine. Uh, but there's probably more ways to um, be active and aware in these issues. Uh, do you mind sharing uh, how you think uh, someone can be involved in this stuff? I think those things you just mentioned are both really good places to start. And I understand why people are skeptical about them. I understand why the land acknowledgement issue. I'm on the committee at the college I teach at uh, to develop a land acknowledgement. And I and I'm among a number of the other folks on the committee have been pushing for a slow process of, of engaging with indigenous people, not simply writing a statement and then slathering it everywhere. And I think I think those are those are good things to do if done right. So I think the process of, uh, you know, say, for example, if people want to uh, identify what territory they're in, um, that's a really great first step. Um, but as you say, it's it's a first step and it needs to go beyond that. And I think there are you know, a lot of ways to um, open that up. I think for educators, there's just so many things that can be done. And I think that, um, you know, this is a putting it mildly and it's a topic of probably an entirely another episode, but the, <laughs> the way California Indian history and culture has been taught in California schools is, you know, abysmal at best. And I, it happens in fourth grade just to yes, bring it back absolutely. to that. <laughs> no, it happens in fourth grade badly. And then yeah. you, know, you see some tremendous work over the last four or five years at trying to reintegrate indigenous history in the upper years. And you're yeah. having to toenail this thing in through three or four different you know, learning outcomes where crazily the U.S. history of interactions with indigenous people happens in a colonial uh, you know, lesson. And so there's just really difficult ways to find this space. But I think that's where you know, some of the greatest in, uh, interventions can occur. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this recently because I was working through um, some curriculum design stuff around uh, World War II history in California. Um, and there's like half a standard about internment. There's maybe a word about like zoot suit riots, you know, but these are like huge things that explain a lot of the dynamics of California 
um, but they're just footnotes um, and it's frustrating. Um, but I, I do want to be respectful of your time and close up with uh, book recommendations. I know you mentioned kind of a lot of books in passing, but maybe I'll ask you to get get specific and limited. Uh, so what are some books? Um, it can be history or California history or anthropology related, but I also love fiction recommendations. I mean, I know that the book There, There was a, a, a huge thing recently, and that's probably only the tip of the iceberg. Um, what? So if either of you have fiction recommendations, that would also be great as well. Yeah, I think I, I'd come up with a, a list of, I think, four, right? So, um, um, mm-hmm. I think the first, the two fiction ones um, are Deborah, Deborah Miranda's, or kind of that's more autobiographical, but Deborah Miranda's Bad Indians, I think, is a good one um, to, to toss out there. Uh, and then I, in terms of fiction, I was thinking of Greg Saris's recent book, um, How a Mountain Was is How a Mountain Was Made. And it's kind of using kind of oral traditions to kind of tell uh, in, in that way. And uh, in terms of kind of nonfiction, um, I, one that I really like is Kutcher Rizling Baldy's uh, We Are Dancing For You, which is on the revival of women's coming of age ceremonies on the Hoopa Valley Reservation in Northern California. I think that's a really kind of powerful book. And then actually one that I'm starting to read now, Damon, I don't know if you know this, have read this one, but it's by Carrie Norgard called uh, Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People. Um, it's, it's by a sociologist, but it's kind of this kind of close collaborative work uh, that, that Carrie did with um, Karuk people in Northern California on the, the, the Klamath River. And so it's, it's kind of really, I, I'm really, I'm in the middle of it right now. And it's, it's really kind of a, a great book. No, I've seen the title. I haven't read it, uh, so I look forward to your uh, your your recommendation. I would add just a couple things. I think Deborah, Debbie Rand's book is is an excellent one to start with. I'd recommend everybody who's interested in California read that one. But I'd also point toward poetry. That's been really helpful for me mm-hmm. when I've yeah. done some work. Um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Janice Gould. Earthquake weather is really influential. Um, uh, you know, I think Natalie Diaz is is phenomenal. I mean, before she won the the recent prize, but I, I, postcolonial love poem is great. But you know, when my brother was an Aztec earlier than that. These are really mm-hmm. sharp voices from different eras about um, you know, about the experiences of of being indigenous in California. And I think that there's something about poetry that, like, I mean, I, you know, Willie and I've had this conversation a number of times. There's something about poetry that just can capture what and I think it's true with fiction too. Uh, they can capture what historians struggle so hard often to describe because we're wedded to sources and you know <laughs> procedures and processes and expectations about the the, the source material. I uh, we, you know we divided up the chapters and I just finished a major edit on the chapter nine, um, which deals with uh, the period of the 1960s and 70s and and into the early eighties. And I just finished that edit when Tommy Orange's book came out and I read it, you know, I think in two settings and was just struck by how well it captured, how beautifully, uh, from a position, from a standpoint of craft, how beautifully it captured, but also how well it captured the stuff that I'd been swimming in, in the primary sources for a long time. And there's a kind of envy, you know, like I wish I could write like that. Both. I can't write like that because I'm not as talented as him, but also my discipline or my, my, you know, my the where I live academically doesn't allow me some of the freedom. If it did, I still couldn't write that way. But I think that that poetry can can do that. Um, I would also point to television. Strangely, I mean, I, I I'm working my way through Rutherford Falls and looking forward to to Reservation Dogs. And I think we are in a really fascinating moment where Indigenous people are depicting themselves in mainstream television, and and I I have never seen anything like Rutherford Falls 
in mainstream TV, something that does such a good job of portraying in a kind of offhanded way the complexities of, of contemporary indigenous life. You know, there's multiple indigenous characters that don't get along with each other and aren't hidebound by tradition. They, you know, but at the same time, they talk about their experiences. They argue with each other. I mean, it's just a really rich, rich portrayal that I have not seen. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal. It's not California. Uh, but it uh, it is it is something that speaks to a larger movement, and I think it, it I'm certainly going to use it in class. And then one other, I would say for California specific, the film The Exiles is easy to find now. It was hard to find for a long time. Kent McKenzie's film from 1961, which was a started out as a documentary, but then he just hired a bunch of locals, non-professional actors, to act out the story that he had written with some of them, and uh, and it's it, it provides an incredible view into L.A., you know, Indian bars, Indian communities in Los Angeles in 1961. It's a part of L.A. that is entirely gone. And uh, it was filmed there with people who lived there. And I, I, I think it's a, a really valuable both as a film and as a document. Um, to close, where can people find uh, both of your work and what are you both working on next? Wherever books are sold, yeah, yeah. thanks thanks to the way the University of California has, has, has marketed the book, it's widely available. People should have no trouble finding it. Yeah, so, um, so this book is available. While We Are the Land is available through the University of California. You can go to the University of California website, uh, University of California Press website uh, to purchase it. Um, my second book, which is called uh, California Through Native Eyes, is available via the uh, University of Washington Press. And um, my first book, We Were All Like Migrant Workers Here, uh, is available through the University of North Carolina Press. They're on you know, Amazon and other, you know, Barnes & Noble and other kind of online uh, online booksellers as well. So, Yeah, let's not give no more rocket money. We're going to cut right. that off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, go, go ahead. I was going to say, what I'm working on now is a project that came out of this book. Um, you know, we were working through a lot of the material, trying to, we, we were working a lot with what was written, trying to use secondary sources where available. And there were a number of spots where we realized, wow, there's just not a lot written. And so I'm currently working on one of those, which is beginning stages of a project that really looks at California between 1836 and 1848, um, brackets off the missions and the gold rush and sort of imagines not in a counter historical way, but really focuses on what was happening between these two, you know, like massive gravitational aspects of California history. Like there was, mm. there was a good decade there between the two and, um, and, and that's what this work is looking at. Yeah, I think I, I'm also kind of inspired by some of the work that we did on this book. And I, I'm starting to kind of think through ways in which kind of um, California Indian kind of mo mobility and uh, mobility and travel, uh, right, helps kind of shape and kind of create modern, the modern worlds and kind of try, I've kind of been teasing and, and kind of reading some stuff on kind of indigenous modernities, which are kind of more rooted and kind of and developed in kind of, kind of literature kind of fields and kind of thinking about how movement and migration kind of in California kind of helps kind of create this kind of notion of kind of modernity. Moder yeah, modernity. So. Got it. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been a fun conversation for me. Well, thanks for having it's us. Great. It's great. Yeah. Been, it's been yeah. great. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, you can support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.